a passage related to families, and I'm not going to put it on the screen because if, if you're not going to follow along, I just want you to, to listen and see if you get the big picture of what God's plan is for families. And then we're going to unpack that today as it's being a, a devoted Sunday to, uh, to the family. Psalm 78 verse 1 says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And it goes on and it talks about Israel's history of remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting. The reason I want to share that verse with you already is what I like. Did you see the pattern going on there? The chain, the link of God's plan? That one generation is telling the next generation so that those not even yet born are going to hear and then they arise and they tell their children. It's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. This is God's plan for passing on faith to the next generation. And what, so what do we talk about? What well, keeps telling you what have you seen God do? What are the praiseworthy deeds you've seen God do? That that's what we're passing on to our children. So I'll refer back to that as we get to this, into this uh, passage in this sermon. But I, I want to share something with you that might seem like it's from a science fiction movie. It, this is really crazy. This is real. What you're looking at there is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. It's also called the Arctic Doomsday Vault. And it is this seed bank on a remote island, in a remote Norwegian island, for the purpose of preserving duplicate samples of plant seeds from countries all over the world in the event that war or disaster or mishandling destroys the supply. You guys ever heard of this? It's really fascinating. The, the purpose is, if something ever happens to your country where you lose that seed, that plant, that that whatever it was there, you can then go back to the seed vault and you can take out a seed and you can replant it in your country. So the goal is you never lose a plant that's indigenous to your country because of, again, war or disaster or just mishandling, those kinds of things. And it's really fascinating when you look at, there, there's a lot on this. You can watch videos that show you what they do on the inside. This is, it's this long corridor that goes in deep into this mountain and they bring the seeds in, they take it down this hall and then they've got these big vaults of just millions of seeds from all over the world. So again, if something tragic happens, you can start over. So why do I share that with you? We are at a point in history, in our country right now, where we have destroyed or corrupted or mishandled some of the foundational truths that God has given us. And what I want to do this morning is go back to the vault of God's Word and take out some of the core values that we need to replant that we need to be rethinking, that as a church, we need to make sure that we're all about. And so I want to remind you of some of the things that we probably know, but we want to make sure we're sticking with God's blueprint, God's design. When it comes to our beliefs, I think of three things. We need to take them seriously. Do you take your faith seriously? Do you view God's word as the infallible word of God? You have the very words of God. And then do you live them 
faithfully? Are you applying them to your life? It's not just head knowledge. And then the last one, we need to be able to express them verbally. And this is where more than any other time in, in recent history, we need to be able to articulate what it is we believe and don't believe. And part of it's hard because we've never had to do that before. In a lot of ways, we just kind of assume we're all on the same page, right? And that's not where we are today. So you need to know what it is you believe, why you believe it, and be able to express that verbally now more than ever. What are your, your core convictions? What are your non-negotiables where you say, no, this is for sure what, what we're sticking to? There's a lady named Elizabeth Rundle Charles. She was a poet and author and hymn writer in the 1800s, and she said this, It is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our fidelity. It is to confess we are called, not merely to profess. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity." Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. Today I want to talk about five essentials that we can't compromise on that are being attacked, and what do we actually believe based on the Word of God, not just what we think, not just what the culture says. So the first one, we start with God. I've been talking about this a lot. If you came to the Truth and Love Conference we had last month, the last two weeks with the youth, We had an unpacking purity conference where we went back to, okay, conviction number one, belief number one, what do we believe about God? To put it really simply, we believe God is the designer and definer of reality and morality. That God is the one who designed this world and everything in it, and he's the one who's defined this world. That includes how he defined male and female and marriage and human life. It's already been defined by us by God. And there's a lot you can unpack there. Obviously, we believe in God, um, the eternal God, expressed in, in, in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that, that type of thing. Um, but this one in particular is crucial today because this is really offensive to a lot of people, that there is a God who, has, who thinks he has the right to tell me what to do, to tell me what to believe. Revelation 4:11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Everything goes back to what we believe about God. Fortunately, the designer and definer of reality has given us the Bible for all people, for all times. Here's some examples. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. That means it doesn't matter if it's 1821, 1921, 2021. God's word doesn't change because God doesn't change. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So what this means, people, is that we are to critique the culture through the lens of God's word, not the other way around. We don't let our preconceived ideas and what the culture believes currently to to color the way we, we interpret scripture. God's word is God's word, and then we use that because we believe it's our final authority, right? So then we get to this other thing called male and female. And this is what's interesting. So as a Christian, I'm not, I'm not surprised that the world is struggling to define what it means to be a man or woman because they've taken God out of the picture. Once you do that and we're not made in his image, then it's kind of up to us and it gets really fuzzy and kind of hard to define. Just yesterday, my seven-year-old said to me, he goes, Dad, is Batman alive or is he dead? 
I was like, this is a theological question. I'm like, well, he's, he's not real. He goes, oh, so he's dead? I'm like, well, no, I mean, he's not a lot. Like, I'm trying to explain to him. And finally, I just said, he's, he's made up. He's, he's invented. Like, somebody thought up who he was going to be and the whole Bruce Wayne and all this other stuff. He's just made up. And so he can kind of be whatever the people who made him up want him to be. And that seemed to satisfy my son. <laughs> Never been asked that before. But in the same way, we live in this culture where it's kind of like it's, it's up to us. We get to do whatever we want. But if we go back to the blueprint, the seed vault of God's word, we learn this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you learn there, first of all, we're distinct from animals. That's, that's important that we remember that. And that also means that we have inherent worth. That by being made in the image of God, that's what gives us value. And any other basic foundation for equality doesn't work. Because it's either going to be based on your status or what the government, the rights you've been given or other, other things that can change or, or that are, are just the whims of, of whoever's in charge. This is saying all of us were made in God's image. That's what gives human life inherent value. The verse goes on and says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and and female, he created him. Again, this is the only basis for human rights. It's the only basis for treating each other with dignity, with respect, with equality. So we're supposed to be like this mirror imaging God to the world. We're image bearers. The theological term for this is imago Dei. That's why I show some respect, even when I disagree with them, because, well, you're an image bearer. That's why I think of someone who's down and out, or someone who, whatever it is, because we're image bearers. That's that. That makes us equals there. Francis Schaeffer said this years ago, though. He said, people today are trying to hang on to the dignity of man, but they do not know how to because they have lost the truth that man is made in the image of God. Once you throw out, there's no designer and definer. Once you throw out made in the image of God, what gives us dignity? What makes us different from animals? Why do I have more rights than an animal? So that's a big one. So we're to reflect God to the world, back to him. And then in Isaiah 43, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. We, we, we heard a verse, I think it was the Smiths read, that whatever you do, this is all through scripture, whatever you do, you're doing it for the glory of God, for the name and fame of Jesus. You're not just an echo of our culture. So as individuals, as male and female, we are to reflect and direct God's glory. I reflect it back to the world. I reflect it to other people. I'm an image bearer. And again, we're, we're beautiful, but we're broken. So I'm made in God's image, but then sin has marred that, that beauty. But we're still a smudged mirror. That there's still aspects of God that we're reflecting. And then I'm to direct everything back to him, his glory. It's all for his existence. Now again, here's why we're in, a, uh, in the situation we're in today. Imagine giving a bunch of middle schoolers, a blank game board, and blank cards, and just some plain pieces, and we say, uh, make up your own game. Just invent your own game. Only rule is this. Uh, there's no rules. Except you need to make sure that you respect other people's rules. You can't make fun of other people's rules, but you don't have to follow other people's rules. And uh, everybody's a winner. <laughs> like, how well is that going to go? Right? They're making up their own game, Right? You can't tell anyone you disagree with their rules. It's going to come down to power. It's going to come down to whoever's the bossiest 
and can convince other people that their rules, but you guys realize it would be chaos because you're defining this game for yourself. And this is where we are today. This is why people are so confused because we fully embraced this radical autonomy, this expressive individualism that it's all about what I think and what I believe and no one else has a right. And we've moved from asking even what is right to I have a right. Everything's all about what I want. We've moved from everything is about I'm offended, that that offends me, that offends me. No one's asking, is God offended in this? It's like that's not even a factor anymore. So this is why so many ideas and statements are illogical and inconsistent and self-refuting and, and, and unscientific. It's because we're just making it up as we go. Like this is literally where we are. We fully embrace this. And it sounds chaotic and insane when you hear these different decisions and statements and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's because there's no longer this designer and definer over all of us. Isaiah talks about this. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Woe to him who strives with him, who formed him. A pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Our attitude should be from Isaiah 64. Oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. That's the right attitude that we should have. But this is, we've drifted from this today because we, it's all about this expressive individualism. I'm going to talk about marriage next. Before I do, though, talking about male and female, I do want to mention the, the, the topic of singleness. As we're talking about family today, I don't want us to think that that doesn't include singles. That singleness is not this unwanted limbo or this hellish purgatory or just this useless intermediate stage Okay, If you're single especially, I want you to realize it's a powerful, purposeful stage or time in your life or just status that God's put you in to be exploited fully for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this. So it's not just, man, I'm just here and I'm just waiting. It's, it's okay to desire to be married, but in the meantime, what are you doing? In his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, Sam Albury says, the issue is not whether this path or that path is better whether singleness or marriage would bring me more good, the issue is God and whether I will plunge myself into him, trusting in him every day. It means as a church, we come alongside singles. We, we, we invite them into our homes. We, we support single moms and their unique challenges. By the way, just a little plug, we have a Tuesday night uh, group that meets in our house called the Young Professionals, 23 to 30-ish uh, age group. Um, we'd love you to come if you're... If you're uh, uh, a single in that category. But just to remind us that as a church, we come around and we're, we're still all a part of this as a family. So let me talk about marriage, another foundational thing that's under attack today. This is intended by God to be this thriving, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman that endures all of these things. I did a wedding yesterday, and we did the typical that in sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth, um, good times, bad times. I'm committing now to you in the future. That whatever happens in the future, I'm making this covenant now. It's not based on my present feelings. It's based on this covenant, which God takes seriously. In, in Hebrews 13, it says, Marriage should be honored by all, esteemed, held in honor. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Again, we unpacked this with our, with our youth the last couple of weeks. 
about uh, the importance of marriage and the beauty of marriage and what romance is really about and what it's pointing to and why purity is important. But this is one of those things today where we've taken the, the game board and decided we're going to redefine this. We're going to make this up. We're going to do whatever we want to do it. And we're, 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 we're mishandling the seed of God's truth right there. That we need to go back. And no wonder that things are collapsing all around us. It's foundational. Listen to this. Focus on the family. And one of their, their big statements on marriage says this. We believe that the Institute of Marriage is a sacred covenant designed by God to model the love of Christ for his people and to serve both the public and private good as the basic building block of human civilization. That sounds really important, doesn't it? Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that's how important marriage is? A basic building block of civilization. This is why God says protect it, honor it. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but Ephesians 5 explains. It's the most popular explanation of how things are supposed to work. In general, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's supposed to be this picture. It's a living parable. That God says, wives, I have a role for you. I have a part for you to play in this, in this story. You'll be playing the part of the church. And I'm going to ask you to submit to your husband's leadership as unto the Lord. Respect your husband. And this isn't because he's so much better than you or smarter than you or deeper than you spiritually. It's because I want to paint a picture for the world to see the church submitting to Christ. And wives, it's easy to go, that's really hard to do but because my husband's not always great and he, he doesn't always make great choices and he's not always worthy of, and God goes, I know, I know. That's why you're going to have to depend on me. And so this is an opportunity for your, 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 your weakness to be demonstrated as strength through me that I'm going to live this through you. And then God says, husbands, you'll be playing the part of Christ in this parable. I want you to love your wives, my daughters, in a very particular way, the way I have loved you, the way I gave up my life for you, the way I provide for you. This is all the things that I'm asking you to do. The way you even love yourself, I'm asking you to do this, husbands. And it's a particular word, God says, husbands, agape your wives. That's this unconditional love we get from God. And as husbands, as a husband, it's easy for me to go, but I'm so weak in that. I don't know if I can do it. As you love the church, I'd, and God goes, I know, exactly. So here's your opportunity to depend fully on me and my strength, my grace that I'm going to give you. But you are going to, in an imperfect way, be this living parable of Christ in the church. Paul finishes this passage by saying this mystery is profound. It's a, it's a mega mystery. The Greek word he uses is actually mega. It's a big mystery, but I'm talking that this is signifying Christ and the church. So it's not just about you and your little romance and getting your needs met. There's a bigger picture that God wants to put on display for the world. Imperfectly, but still Christ in the church. That's God's plan there. It's supposed to be the gospel message. And by the way, Colossians 3 follows the same pattern. It, it, it talks about wives and then it talks about husbands. And it adds in there, and husbands, you need to listen to this. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, this is God talking to men saying, how you're treating my daughters, it's important. Don't be harsh with my daughters. Because we can have a tendency to do that. We're given a warning there as men. So what is this symbolizing? Let me just remind you of the gospel, another foundational thing. This is a summary statement that God in his inexpressibly holy love sent his son to live the life we could not live and die the death we deserve to die so that everyone who trusts in him can be reconciled to God as his adopted child. That's the message. That's what this ministry of reconciliation that you can be reconciled with God is supposed to be seen in a marriage. And that's why even when husbands and wives have conflict, 
when they fight, my wife doesn't like that fight, so I call it, um, it's just intense fellowship maybe. I don't know what you want to call it. But um, when we have that and then we reconcile, that's a picture of the gospel as well. It's a, ministry, it's a message of reconciliation. God is reconciling the world to himself. So that's this parable that God is intending in our marriages. And it, it's a sacred thing. Some of you might be feeling overwhelmed, like, okay, that's, I need to be reminded that this is a big deal. That some of my, my children's first picture of the gospel is what they see in my marriage. It's a big deal. Jesus, when he was asked about marriage, went back to the seed vault of Genesis 1 and 2. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, very offensive today, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So one purpose of marriage is to signify the gospel. Another picture is to, another purpose is to unify a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And then you've got this command all through Scripture about multiplying, be fruitful and multiply, have children. This is from Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve. Then in Genesis 9, after the flood, God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. A few verses later, you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth. So I want to remind you, and this is part of God's plan for sex. It was created by God for, to be used in a specific way, a man and a woman and a husband and a wife. That's God's plan. You guys hear that? That's the blueprint. That's how it works. It's his command. It's also his warning to flee from anything that's not like that because it's powerful. So marriage is to signify, unify, and multiply. God is saying this is the optimal environment to raise children. A man and a woman, husband and wife, committed to each other in a low-conflict marriage for life. That's the optimal environment. In our culture today, current stats are 40% of babies being born or to un- unwed mothers, single moms. Uh, 40%. That's a lot of babies being born that don't get to have this environment, that, that, that don't get to see this picture. Again, we're trying to go back to the blueprint. So tying these two together, marriage and then having children in Malachi, the people are griping about God not hearing their prayers. One, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Then God gives the answer. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. First Peter 3 talks about this. Husbands, you need to listen. God says you need to live with your wife in an understanding way and treat, treat her with respect, honor her, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. God is saying, if, if you're treating her wrong, my daughter, we have a problem. Why are God's people complaining that God isn't hearing our prayers? God says, it's because of how you're treating your wife. But then he gives this purpose. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? What was he trying to seek in this marriage? And he gives the answer, godly offspring. That what we saw today, this dedication that we did today, was for the fulfillment of this verse that we are desiring to raise up this next generation, godly offspring for the glory of God. So then God gives another warning. So be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, The God of Israel does violence. It literally means a tearing apart to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. That it's meant to be this bonding thing together, but you're ripping it, you're tearing this bond that God's intended it to be. So that leads us to the next one, the fourth essential, the family. 
And this is where God wants families not to be molded by this culture, not to be just an echo of a culture, but to be Christ-centered, Bible-saturated families that are doing things for the kingdom of God, making an impact for the kingdom. And as we confessed here, parents are accountable. Parents are responsible to do this. The verse that we referred to was from Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Some versions say a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children, the children of one's youth. And this is something that's, again, in our culture today, kids aren't viewed that way as gifts, as blessings, as rewards, as arrows to be used for God's kingdom. They're maybe wanted or maybe a nuisance or they're interviewing or they're there for my fulfillment or something. We don't view them as, this is the godly offspring that God wants me to launch into the world. That arrows aren't meant to just stay in the quiver. They're meant to be aimed and then launched. Not a boomerang either, right? Where they come back. So again, it's me thinking through. Am I sending, am I launching my children to places I'll never go, making an impact that I, that's bigger than I'll ever have? Am I laying the foundation for many godly generations? This is all part of this responsibility. That pattern I mentioned in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It goes on and then it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Wives, husbands, children, fathers. They're all, they're all called out there. Colossians 3 follows the exact same pattern. Wives, husbands, children's fathers. Um, the, the interesting thing about fathers here, and men, I want you to listen. We're called out specifically, not just mom and dad or parents. It says, fathers, you bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. So wives have a particular role. It's as unto the Lord. Husbands, it's as Christ. Children, you obey your parents in the Lord, right? There's the motive behind every one of those. But here, fathers are told, so I need you to bring up your children, but how do you do this? Well, it's according to God's word, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And just like Colossians 3, do you, get, do you men notice there's a warning there to us men? Are you listening, men? It says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. In Colossians 3, the warning is, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged or want to give up. That's a warning because that means there's something in us, dads, that we could cause our kids to lose heart. That if we're too domineering or too inconsistent or too whatever, that they are the ones who get, get angry instead of get discipled. So a warning to us. The passage we read earlier also from Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your might. These words I've commanded you today shall be in your heart. And then it says, you shall teach them diligently. Interesting word there. Uh, that's the only time that phrase, teach them diligently or teach them, is ever translated as teach in the whole Old Testament. It, it, it is usually translated as sharpened or it has something to do with an arrow or a sword or piercing. In other words, he's saying you're sharpening your children with these commands that I've given you. You're to do something with them. And then it says it's not just the Sunday morning, Wednesday night thing. It's just a family environment thing. It's when you sit at home, maybe when you're eating, maybe on your way to school, maybe when you're about to go to bed, maybe when you wake up. Pick one. Pick one. Talk about the Lord. Again, if it's on your heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But this is why the home is so important. It establishes basic foundational things, beliefs, identity, character, purpose. This is what the home is supposed to be about that we then launch them out into the world. So mom and dad first, God's commands are on your heart, then you teach them, and you've got those four situations. The way I think of it is we possess and then we pass. We possess it, we pass it. A lot of parents want to pass on something that they don't possess. 
that they want their kids to be all excited about God's word, but they're not spending time in God's word. So first we possess it, then we pass it on to our kids. And that's crucial because it's more than what we say we believe, it's what they see we believe, right? More is caught than taught. So this passing is supposed to be intentional, directional, developmental, and then generational. Again, I love that today we've got parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents in here because it's a generational thing. We read in Psalm 78 that it's one generation telling the next generation the praise for the deeds of the Lord. A couple, of verses, a couple of chapters before Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 4, there's a warning, only take care and keep your soul diligently. Watch yourselves closely, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So here's a warning, folks. Don't forget what you've seen God do. Not just tell your kids Bible stories. That's great. But what have you seen God do? How are you making sure your children, and then your job's not done, your grandchildren know these stories? See if you, see if you recognize this is a theme even in just the psalm, Psalm 44. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. Moms and dads, grandparents, what have you seen God do? What do you remember God providing for? How has he answered prayers? What are you telling your kids about God's still alive and powerful today at work? Psalm 71. So even old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. He's saying, I don't want to die until I've made sure the next generation hears about you. That's my prayer. Keep me alive so that I can tell the coming generation. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. You guys seen a pattern here? Okay. Psalm 145, one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. This is our responsibility that we raise up this next generation. We teach them the essentials of the faith, but part of it is us telling them, let me tell you what I've seen my God do. Do you know this story? Have you ever heard me tell this before? Okay, let me make sure that you remember this. This is what I've seen God do, and I want to pass it on to you. A verse that we use a lot of times for baby dedications is from Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That word train, it's interesting. This is also a word that's only translated as train once. It always is translated in the other places in the Old Testament as to dedicate. Either when you're dedicating a new house or the dedication of the temple. Uh, it's where we get the word Hanukkah. Hanak means to dedicate. So the feast of dedication that Jesus celebrated, Hanukkah. It means to dedicate. So literally it's dedicate your children. And then it says in the way he should go. Actually in the Hebrew the word should isn't there. It literally just means in his way. And in Proverbs, almost 70 times the word way is, is your path, either good or bad. And so the point is that you're directing them. You're starting them on this path. You're initiating them. And it's a proverb, not a promise. It doesn't mean that for sure then they'll never turn away. It just means as you're setting them on this path, then it's, it's more likely that they're going to stick with it because you've started them out strong. So you're dedicating your kids. Lord, this is what I'm dedicating to you. And you're telling them this is the path that you're going on. So let me end with the church, our role as a church. If you picture it this way, that each family is supposed to be a little church with dads leading the way there. We talked about the men, right? The fathers. You're the spiritual thermostat of your family. Each family is a little church, but guess what? Each church is a big family. You've got all this family term you see. For example, in 1 Timothy, he talks about the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, if you join our church, we talk about welcome to this 
dysfunctional family. We're not perfect. But this is our role as a church family to build each other up. Look what it says here. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So again, the home, the family is a little church. The church is a big family. What is it, Olive Garden that says, when, well, when you're here, you're family? Is that what it is? That's the way it works. You're part of this local body. When you're here, you're part of this family. And we have a family responsibility. In fact, in Scripture, the home and the church are linked where, when they're talking about qualifications for elders and deacons, it says, well, first, is he leading in his home, in his little church? If he's not leading there, he doesn't need to be leading in the big family. Okay? Make sure that that family's well-led, and then that qualifies him or disqualifies him. And then what's our purpose? Just a reminder, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love this this command to go make disciples is bookend with two really great promises. I've got all authority. I'm always with you. That's what I've got to remember. That that's, that's part of our role. That as we're, as we're thinking about evangelizing, by the way, the number one way to evangelize someone is to raise them in a home where, that loves Jesus. That's where our evangelism starts, in our home. But then we go and we tell people. We're growing people. We're growing these children. And then we're sending them out. Our role is to go to the lost. Jesus never tells lost people to go to church. He tells the church to go to lost people. That's our responsibility as a church, to grow and to go. So those five things are supposed to function together. God is the designer and definer. You get the definition of male and female and marriage and family and what's the purpose of the church. All of that has been designed and defined by God that we're supposed to be living out to this lost world. And here's the important question. How is the fruit that the world sees in us any different than the fruit that they have? That when they look at us, do they see something and they go, that looks, that looks amazing. I would love to have some of that. That's what I want in my life. Is, are our homes any different than non-believers' homes? Our priorities, are the things that we get stressed about, are, is it just like the world? Because the world a lot of times can look at us and go, well, I've got that. I've got that kind of fruit. I, do you have any fruit that, that you can offer me that's different? And so how are we modeling this to this world? Jesus actually said it differently. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Salt was used in Jesus' day mainly as this preservative, right? Because meat's going bad. They didn't have refrigerators. Meat is just naturally going to go bad left to itself. It needs salt to preserve it. When we look at how bad the world is going... It's just, that's just what happens apart from Christ. It's going to go bad. The question is, where's the salt? How are we acting as a preservative? He goes on and he says, you're, you're the light of the world. That people are supposed to see that you're different. They see these good deeds and then they glorify God. Again, it's all back to glorifying him. That's our role. We're this city on a hill. So going back to these beliefs that we take seriously and, and live faithfully, express them verbally. Again, think of them as this blueprint. We're going back to the seed vault of God's word and then we're taking it and we're saying this is what we believe and we're bold about it. We're confident because God's spoken. In Ephesians 5 it says, look carefully then how you walk, how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time 
because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If I could just remind you, the word of God is the will of God. That what Paul's warning there is you don't live aimlessly, you don't live foolishly like the world that just wants to be comfortable and happy. That we've got a job to do, we have a purpose for while we're here. So is this your final authority? Is this your compass? Is this your light? Is this your handbook? Is this your blueprint? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, in these days of exceptional evil, are you doing something exceptional? We live in a crazy time. So how is my life different? How am I radically raising my children to be counter-cultural and not just to blend in? What am I reminding my kids of? We read these verses that we pray for our children. Are you reminding your children and grandchildren, hey, this is what I see in you. This is what I pray for you. We're giving them purpose. We're reminding them of the blueprint God's design. And we've got to explain it. And we've got to have hard conversations sometimes that are awkward that our parents never had with us. But it's because of the culture that's all around us. The world is happy to disciple our kids. But we have a role to disciple them ourselves. So I want to end by reading a prayer for you. A prayer and a challenge and hopefully encouragement. John Piper wrote a book years ago called So What's the Difference? And he talks about men and women and male and female. And at the end he has this prayer for them that I've modified. But then I want to pray for all of us as we talk about these, these crucial areas. My earnest challenge and prayer for you is that all of your life, in whatever calling, be devoted to the glory of God. That you trust so fully the promises of Christ that peace and joy and strength fill your soul to overflowing. That this fullness of God overflow in daily acts of love so that people might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. That you be men and women of the book who love and study and obey the Bible in every area of its teaching. That meditation on biblical truth be your source of hope and faith. That you continue to grow in understanding through all the chapters of your life, never thinking that study and growth are only for others. That you be men and women of prayer so that the word of God will be open to you, so the power of faith and holiness will descend upon you. That your spiritual influence may increase at home and at church and in the world. That you have a deep grasp of the sovereign grace of God which undergirds all of these spiritual processes. And that you be deep thinkers about the doctrines of grace and even deeper lovers of these things. That you be totally committed to ministry, whatever your specific calling. That you not fritter your time away on entertainment or screen time or unimportant hobbies or shopping or excessive sports. But that you redeem the time for Christ and his kingdom. That you develop a wartime mentality and lifestyle, never forgetting that life is short. That billions of people hang in the balance of heaven and hell every day. That the love of money would be seen as spiritual suicide. That the goals of upward mobility, nicer clothes, cars, houses, vacations, food, hobbies, are a poor and dangerous substitute for the goals of living for Christ with all your might and maximizing your joy in ministry for people's needs. That if you're single, You exploit your singleness to the full in devotion to God the way Jesus and Paul and Mary Slessor and Amy Carmichael did and not be paralyzed by the desire to be married. That if you're a wife, you creatively and intelligently and sincerely support the leadership of your husband as deeply as obedience to Christ, that you encourage him in his God-appointed role, that you influence him spiritually, primarily through your fearless words and actions and prayer. If you're a husband, that you love your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
that you be a humble, self-denying, upbuilding, happy spiritual leader, that you consistently grow in grace and knowledge so as never to quench the aspirations of your wife, that you cultivate tenderness and strength, the pattern of initiative and a listening ear, and that you accept the responsibility of provision and protection in your family, however you or your wife share that labor. That if you have children, you accept the responsibility along with your spouse or alone if necessary to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children who hope in the triumph of God, establishing with your spouse a pattern of teaching and discipline that is not solely dependent on the church or school to impart Bible knowledge and spiritual values. That you take the time to seriously evaluate the various chapters of your life's ministry. Chapters are divided by things like age, strength, singleness, marriage, employment, children at home, children in college, grandchildren, retirement. No chapter has all the joys, but living for the glory of Christ to the full in every chapter is what makes it a success, not whether it reads like somebody else's chapter or whether it has in it what only another chapter will bring. So I pray lastly that you look to the loving God of Scripture and dream about the possibilities of your service to Him and your, your unique circle of influence. That's my prayer for us. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful that we have your word, the blueprint that directs us, Lord. I pray that we would love you with all of our everything and that your word would be on our hearts. And then, Lord, as one of the first applications of that, that we would teach your word diligently to our children and grandchildren, that as a church body, we would be Christ-centered and others-focused. And, Lord, that we would um, see these children as blessings, as arrows that we get to help raise as well. I pray that you would encourage us today as a family, as one big family, Lord, that we would build each other up in our faith. Thanks for our time here this morning, Lord, and we honor you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So now we're gonna uh, uh, close our time with the last institution that we haven't done yet, which is uh, participation in the Lord's Supper. Um, so first, some housekeeping things uh, to remind us of the suffering of Christ on the cross. We have the opportunity to try to open these things without spilling them. So that's our shared suffering. But a practical note, the first top layer is a clear la layer, and when you pull it back, it should reveal the bread. And then the second layer, which is the pinkish color, purple color, when you pull that back, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, reveal the cup. If you didn't get one of these when you came in, raise your hand. Uh, we can have some people, and we'll have some people in the back with some baskets. It may take some time to get to you, but don't worry, we still have plenty of time. While they're getting those uh, dispersed, um, Chris made a great point about some things that we have in the church that uh, serve as a witness to those outside the church. Um, and one of those things is the unity of relationships. Um, we see clearly that the world is in a broken state and there's a lot of broken relationships and we get to stand in a different state. Um, not because we're somehow better people um, or we somehow have it all together, but rather we acknowledge an equal platform, the great equalizer that we talked about. And really, the great equalizer for all men, all mankind, is the cross. Because when we look at the cross, what we see is we see an equal status amongst all of us as broken and desperate and in need of a Savior. There's not one of us that can look at the cross and say, I don't need that because I can save myself. We all need it. And this is the great proclamation of what we do as the church and what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. 
is because as Jesus has commanded our participation symbolically in his blood of the new covenant and his body broken for us, what he accomplished on the cross, one of the things that we are doing is that we are testifying in this moment that we need his sacrifice and then also that his sacrifice is sufficient for even me. And one of the great truths about that is not only do we celebrate that fact that it is sufficient for me and I am testifying to that, but by my participation in this cup, I am also testifying that this grace is sufficient for you. You're testifying that the person next to you, that the person behind you, that the person across the room, that we all can look to Christ and say his grace is sufficient to us. I mean, this makes total sense then why the Apostle Paul, when he was talking to a Corinthian church that was divided, and he was encouraging and spurring them to unity, the first thing that he did is he pointed them to this institution of Lord's Supper. Because how can you have conflict with somebody where you think, I'm better, they're worse, I'm right, they're wrong, when you look at the cross together and say, no, we both are desperate for the same grace and the same outpouring of his love and provision for us. And that's what we get to do in communion. And that's one of the things that we get to celebrate together. And so on that note, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, then really there's not much of a point of application or participation in this meal. In fact, the Apostle Paul would tell you, don't, don't worry about it. But rather that's not a punishment, but rather that's an invitation because you have heard the gospel this morning. You have heard that Jesus' unfailing and faithful love is poured out to you, giving you an opportunity to respond in faith, and that is just simply acknowledging him as Savior, confessing your sin, and inviting him into your life. And if you haven't done that this morning, this is the great opportunity to do it. Today may be the day of salvation. This meal is welcome to you. Just put your faith in Christ. And I do encourage you that if you do that for the first time today, don't just do that alone. This is, again, communion. Let those who brought you here know. Uh, talk to those, one of us and, uh, so we may be encouraged by it. Or if perhaps you still have more questions and you feel that inclination, but you're not sure exactly what to do with that, um, then don't worry. Don't worry about this meal, but find one of us. We would love to share with you uh, that great hope of which we have. Again, what we are doing here is that we're going to take an opportunity first and reflect. We're going to reflect of this great truth that we are proclaiming that God's sufficiency is enough for even me through his offering of salvation. And we have some diligence to do with our own lives. Is there somebody that I need to forgive? Is there something in my life that is not matching with this message? And so I'm going to take, give you another second as uh, we make sure that everybody has uh, the cup who needs it and, uh, and reflect on that truth for just a moment. Again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There'll be a time when we won't do this anymore, or at least in the same way, because there's no need for a symbol about the upcoming banquet and communion with the Lord when we are with the Lord participating in his great banqueting table. But for now, let us remember what he did. Let us remember what he's doing in our lives now, and let's be hopeful and expectant of what he will do which is come back and put this world right. Apostle Paul continues, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For again, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So thank you for that proclamation together until he comes. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that in all the ways that you could bring about salvation, you chose to break yourself. Such suffering demonstrated is a testimony of your great love for us. And as we remember this work this morning, remind us of a salvation continuing to work out in our lives until you come. And so we ask, come, Lord, quickly, come. Amen. We're going to move now last into our time of invitation. We're going to sing another song together. And during this time, again, uh, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ and you want to know more about that, please come and ask. Uh, If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then I know that there's then diligence. You've heard God's word proclaimed this morning, and so we all have a job to respond to it rightly. And then lastly, if you've uh, gone through the Welcome Home team or met with Lance and you want to make your membership known, this is the opportunity to do so. Um, Whatever it is and however you need to respond, I invite you now to do that.